Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here this morning. For those of you who may not have met me yet, my name is Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. If you're a first-time visitor with us this morning, we're glad that the Lord has brought you here to worship with us. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Psalm 119. We'll be looking at the 16th stanza. The Ion stanza, which is verses 121 through 128. And I'm going to read that for you, but before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. And so may he add his blessing to the reading of it. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act. For your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have heard now from your word. And so together, we lift up our eyes to you who are enthroned in the heavens And we ask you for mercy. Mercy that we might rightly know you through your word and by your spirit. And so even as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master, so too do our eyes now look to you, the Lord our God, until you have mercy on us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we may not like it, but it is a fundamental truth that we as human beings made in the image of God are created for service. We are created to serve. And so the reality this morning is that every single one of us in this room serves someone or something. In other words, we all, every single one of us, have a master. We have a master that we serve. And we can see this In the very beginning of the Bible, if we go back to Genesis, we can see that God creates Adam and Eve. He creates man to submit themselves to him as their Lord, as their master, to obey his commands. They are to serve him and glorify him in that way. And then yet, what happens after the fall? After Adam and Eve reach out and eat the fruit of that tree that God commanded them not to, what happens? They no longer serve their master, and God is no longer their gracious master. They are no longer his loyal, faithful servants. But now what do we do? We worship and serve and are servants to the creation in our fallen state in Adam rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the tragic reality of our fallen state. And yet, here's an equally incredible reality. Here's the good news. When God graciously saves us and graciously makes himself our master and makes us his servants, 
What happens in that relationship is that we begin to reflect his character. You see, in regards to our character, it's very true, a biblical truth, that we become what we serve. We become what we worship. We image and reflect that which we serve as our master. And you see, that reality is exactly what this stanza in Psalm 119 is getting at. It's getting at the reality that when God graciously saves us and now he is our master and we are his servants, we will begin to reflect his character in our lives, in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our dispositions. And so what we're going to look at this morning in this stanza is three characteristics or three marks of character that God, as our gracious master, creates in us as his servants. Three character marks. First of all, we'll see that we will, because God is our master, be loyal servants. We'll see that in verses 121 through 123. We'll see that David is a loyal servant to the Lord, even as his enemies oppress him. Even as the Lord's promise seems to linger, even through that, because God's his master, he is a loyal servant. Second of all, we'll see that we will be humble servants. We'll see that in verses 124 and 125. That because we now know who God is, as our holy master, as our gracious master, the only appropriate response for us to have before him is to be humble. Humble to acknowledge that it's he alone that justifies us and sanctifies us. And then thirdly and finally, we'll see that we will be jealous servants. We'll see that in verses 126 through 128. That because we know our master has treated us so well and is jealous himself for his glory, we will also be jealous for his glory as well. And if I do my job this morning, brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to walk away from this stanza understanding. The reason that we have the character that we have by God's grace is because of the type of master, gracious, holy, glorious to us. The foundation of our character is the character of God. And so I pray that as we rightly understand this stanza, we would be encouraged and challenged by that reality. So let's look first then at how we will be humble servants because God is our master. Look at the first three verses in this stanza with me. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. What these verses make abundantly clear for us is that David is in a dire situation. David has enemies who are oppressing him, who are persecuting him, who are pursuing him. And the question that we might naturally ask is, well, who are these oppressors? Who are they? Are they those who are outside of the covenant community of God, those who are outside of Israel? Or are they those who are within the covenant community? Because we know, if we know anything about the story of David, he has both types of enemies. What I will argue, based on verse 126 of this stanza, is that these oppressors, these enemies, are actually within the covenant community. In other words, these are covenantally unfaithful Jews, those who are identified externally with Israel, but are not walking in covenant faithfulness with God. And so because they're not doing that, and because they hate God and His Word, that manifests itself in hatred 
towards David. I think that's the case because look at verse 126 with me. It is time for the Lord to act. Why? For your law has been broken. And it's that language there of broken that tips me off to the fact that I think this is talking about covenantally unfaithful Jews that are oppressing David. Because that language of broken there is picked up both by Isaiah in Isaiah 24 and Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 11 when the prophets of God are charging the people of God with having broken the covenant. They've broken it. And this is the language that's being used here. They've broken your law, O Lord. And so because they hate you, they hate me, and they're oppressing me. Your own people, those who've taken your name upon themselves, they're persecuting me. And so what is David's situation? As if that weren't bad enough, it's even more dire because he's feeling like he's coming to the end of his rope as far as the strength of his faith. Look at verse 123. He says, my eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Now, we've seen this language of my eyes longing for your salvation. We've seen that earlier in this psalm, and we saw that it's actually a very weak translation in the ESV. It's more appropriately translated, my eyes are failing. They're coming to an end as I'm looking for your salvation, which you've promised righteously in your word. What David is saying is, Lord, I'm at the end of myself. I don't know that I can hang on much longer while I wait for your promised deliverance. I know you've promised that you will make your people pure and you will purify and rid the earth of all wicked and evilness and sin. And so I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for that deliverance. And yet I've waited so long and my oppressors are so strong that I feel like I'm gonna let go at any moment. Not because I want to, but because I'm so weak. And so David's situation is dire because as his enemies are closer and more vehement than they've ever been, God and his promise and his nearness is very distant, perhaps more distant than it's ever been. And yet though this is David's dire situation, notice his response. How is David responding to this persecution and this waiting on God? Well, look again at verse 121. The first half there, what does he say? I have done what is just and right. Even in the face of his oppressors, even as God feels distant, he says, Lord, I've done what is right and what is just. I am your king. I am your servant. And I've walked in covenant faithfulness with you. And really what we're seeing here is that he is reflecting the character of his master. Why? Because we know that God himself is just and righteous, don't we? We know that from places like Psalm 89, verse 14. Listen to what that says. Psalm 89, verse 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. In other words, the psalmist is saying, Lord, your rule and reign is characterized by righteousness and justice. Why? Because you are righteous, because you are just. And David is saying, because that's true of you, and you are my master, and I am your servant, I am loyally walking with you and reflecting your character. I reflect your justice. I reflect your righteousness in my earthly rule and reign because of who you are. And David acknowledges that this is God's gracious work in him. He is a loyal servant by God's grace. He's only able to be that faithful himself covenantally, 
Because first and foremost, God is covenantally faithful to him. Because here's the reality. David knows that he wasn't always a servant of God. God wasn't always his master. He knows that there was a time when he was a slave to the flesh and the world and the devil. He was in bondage to his sin. And here's the thing. If you're a believer here this morning, you know that that was once true of you as well. No matter how young you were saved, there was a time, unless you were regenerated in the womb, that you were a slave to the flesh and the world and the devil. And so David knows that. And I love how clearly Paul describes this reality in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, Paul writes to the Romans, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? This is the reality we talked about in the introduction of the sermon. And there's two options. Who are you going to be a slave and a servant to? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul makes this even more clear just a few verses later in verse 22 of Romans 6. He says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So this is the gospel. The gospel is that in Adam and through our own sinful choices, we had offered ourselves as slaves to the flesh, the world, and the devil. We were slaves of our own passions in bondage to our sin, unable to free ourselves in any way, shape, or form without any desire to free ourselves. And when we were in that state, God sent his spirit to regenerate us and give us a new heart so that we now love him. And we give ourselves to him as his servant. And he's entered into a covenant relationship with us where he says, I will be your master and you will be my servant. And I will commit myself to you. This is the good news. That the bondage that we were once under, that burden under the cruel taskmaster of the flesh, the world, and the devil, that has been broken by God's sovereign grace. And now we are brought into this loving relationship where we serve our gracious master. And how was this deliverance brought about? This deliverance was brought about by the father lovingly, graciously, in accord with his decree, sending the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, to assume a human nature, body and soul, to be born under the law to condescend and become the servant of God, the suffering servant that Isaiah promised. He humbles himself and becomes obedient to the law to be the servant that we failed to be, to perfectly obey the law of God, perfectly glorify God in all the ways that we have failed to. And he did that for us so that the Father takes the, that perfect track record, the merit that the son accomplished in being the perfect servant of God, and he now accounts that as our own. He says, that's yours. And what happens on the cross? Jesus takes all of our sins, all of our rebellion against our master, our creator, 
all the offenses that we've committed against him by serving the creation rather than him. And Jesus takes that cup of the Father's wrath and he drinks the last drop of it so that there's none left for us. This is how our deliverance has been accomplished so that we could be freed from our bondage to self and the world and the devil. And this is exactly what David is getting at, by the way, in verse 122. Look at the first half of verse 122 with me again. He says, give your servant a pledge of good. A pledge of good. Now you can translate that word pledge there as guarantor or surety. You can look at the NASB or the KJV, the King James Version, and they translate it surety or guarantor. It's completely legitimate to do that with this language. And I actually think it's more helpful because what's a guarantor? I actually, ironically, the Lord provided me a sermon illustration in the mail this week. I had a letter come to our house that said, from the hospital to the guarantor of Benjamin Faber. That's my four-year-old son. Apparently, they didn't have my name. Don't ask me why. And I thought, there you go. That, what is a guarantor? I am Benjamin's guarantor. Why? Because any debts that he might have, the hospital knows as his guarantor is going to pay them. You're obligated to pay for them because of your relationship to your son. And so whatever concerns Benjamin's well-being is my concern. I take that on as if that's my well-being. And you see, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we're talking about here. That God, when he enters into this relationship with us that we don't deserve, he becomes our gracious master, loving and kind, and he makes us his servants. The reality, when he enters into that covenant of grace relationship with us, is that he says, I'm taking all of your concerns upon myself. All of your debts, your well-being, they're mine. They're mine. And so this is the glorious reality. And so how does this show up then in David's life and in our lives as the people of God? How does God show himself to be our surety, our guarantor? Well, first of all, I hope you go immediately to Jesus. <laughs> Right, Because what is Jesus saying? He's saying the Father sends the Son in love to say, I take your debts upon myself and I will pay them in full on the cross so that when at the end of all things, when we stand before the judgment throne of God, the Son will stand up in our place and say, Father, he's one of mine. She's one of mine. You gave them to me. I paid that debt in full. Not guilty. Righteous on my behalf. Because of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension, Jesus is, and you know this from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus is the surety or guarantor of a better covenant. And he has accomplished that for us. So that's the first way that he is our surety. Second of all, and this is just mind-blowing as if the first one wasn't, God is a surety for us and that when he enters into that relationship again, he says, I am so going to wed together my glory and your good that they become one. They're not opposed to one another. That which glorifies God is our good and that which is our good glorifies God. That's how inextricably he's linked himself to us and our well-being. And so what does that mean? Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the eternal God who is sovereign and has eternally decreed everything that comes to pass. And so what we can know is that everything in our lives that comes our way is because our gracious master and our God has eternally decreed it to be such for our good and for his glory. 
And so this is what David gets to cling to as he prays and pleads to God for a surety, a pledge of good. As his enemies are attacking him and he feels like he's coming undone in regards to his relationship with the Lord and feeling like he can persevere in the faith, he can know God has pledged himself as his surety, his guarantor. And so even this will work for David's good and for God's glory. And brothers and sisters, the exact same is true for us. And these realities are so rich. I spend the most time in the sermon on this because everything else flows out of this. The unspeakable reality that God is our gracious master now. He saved us and redeemed us to the praise of his glorious grace. And so we're no longer in bondage to sin, but we're now servants of him and the Son and the Spirit. We're freed to walk in his ways, to walk in the ways that we were created to walk according to his word. Because the fellowship that we were created for and lost in the fall has now been restored to us through his gracious work. And so because he is a gracious master who has sovereignly saved us, guess what that means for us? We will be loyal servants to him by his grace. But that's not the only characteristic that will mark us as his servants. Second of all, not only will we be loyal servants, but we will be humble servants. Look at verses 124 and 125 with me. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Now, what we have to point out here, because David is pleading with the Lord, right? He starts this psalm out with pleading to the Lord, and now he's pleading with the Lord again here. But these pleadings are different. The relational aspect is different. So in the first plea that he's making before the Lord, where he says, I have done what is just and right, he's making a plea based on his relationship with his enemies. And what he's saying is, Lord, they're charging me with these false accusations. I'm not guilty of what they've charged me of. So Lord, bring justice to rain down on their heads. I'm being oppressed wrongly, so deliver me by bringing justice down on their heads. But now, what is he pleading? He's not pleading based on his relationship with his enemies. He's pleading based on his relationship with God himself. And so he doesn't ask for justice here. Because if God gave him justice, what would that amount to? <laughs> based on his own law keeping, God would give him wrath. Even as one who's in a covenant of grace with the Lord, if the Lord were to judge him according to justice, in and of himself, David would get wrath. So instead, what does David plead here? He's not pleading for justice. He's saying, Lord, deal with me according to your steadfast love, according to your unchanging, infinite love that you have made manifest in this covenant of grace. Show mercy to me. David knows every day of his life he stands in need anew of the grace and mercy of God because of his continued sinfulness. And so he's pleading for that, saying, Lord, this is my only hope in this situation, that you will be faithful to your covenant and steadfast in your love. And yet notice what's fascinating here. How does David say that this steadfast love of the Lord will manifest itself in David's life? How does he say it's going to show up? How does David say he'll know that the Lord is showing this love towards him? Well, look at the second half of verse 124. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. 
Go on to verse 125. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. What's he saying? He's saying, I'll know that you're showing me your steadfast love as you teach me your statutes. Think about that. That's mind-blowing. What's his situation? (laughs) He's got these enemies that are oppressing him. They want to wipe him out. They want to kill him. God feels distant as his enemies feel near. And David says, my greatest pressing need is that you would give me understanding according to your word, that you would teach me, that you would instruct me. And he's not just talking about head knowledge, not that I would just understand your word, that's part of it, but that I would receive the content of your revelation, that I would believe it and I would trust it and walk in accord with it. Lord, I will know that you are being faithful to your covenant when you do that in me, when you do that for me. Because I can't do it any other way. David knows that unless God's spirit works in him to will and to work for God's good pleasure, he knows it won't happen. He knows it will not happen. And so we see David's humility here. Because you know what this means. If this verse is true, which we know that it is, then what that tells us is that what David is able to claim in verse 121, that he's done what is just and right, even that is an evidence of God's gracious work in his life. It's not a result of something that he could naturally drum up from his own resources. No, this is God covenantally showing his love to David. That he's reflecting God's character and walking in accord with his word. David is not boasting in himself here. He's boasting in the Lord. He's boasting in his master. It's all of grace. And so we see David's humility on display here. And brothers and sisters, the exact same will be true for us. God is our holy and gracious master. And as we see that, with ever increasing clarity through his word and by his spirit, that is going to produce a greater degree of humility in us before God. That's what's going to happen because we see his holiness and we realize, Lord, I can never put you in my debt I can never do enough good that I say, Lord, you owe me this. You owe me deliverance from my enemies. You owe me whatever promise you take from the Lord. You owe me this. You can't say that based on your own righteousness because it's filthy rags in comparison to his holiness. And so we need him to deal with us according to his steadfast covenant love. And he does. And so that humbles us. And we know that we cannot persevere in the faith and rightly know God's word and love it and walk in accord with it unless his spirit is at work in us. And so in humility, that humility will make itself known in prayer, even as it does here in David's life. We'll be on our faces in prayer saying, Lord, keep me faithful to you. Lord, teach me from your word. Lord, give me understanding. I don't have the resources in and of myself to make this happen. We cannot do it in our own strength, but the Lord will do it in us so that we can say, At the end of all things, when we stand before God and we have faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully walked according to his covenant, we'll be able to say what Jesus tells us we're to say in Luke 17, verse 10. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And how have we even done our duty? By God's grace and by God's grace alone. And so we will be marked, brothers and sisters, by humility, even as we wait for deliverance from our enemies and for God's promises to be fulfilled. So we've seen that we will be, by God's grace, because of the master that he is, we will be loyal servants, 
We will be humble servants. And lastly, we will be jealous servants. Look at verse 126 with me. David says, It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. I'm trying to read that with a little startling inflection because the verse should startle you a little bit. (laughs) And I don't need to inflect it. The content itself is startling. Why? Because what is David saying here? He's saying, Lord, it's time for you to act now. Oh, really? Does the Lord not know that? Who's David talking to? Well, look at verse 126 again. It is time for the Lord. All caps, right, in your translation there. It's Yahweh, the creator and sustainer and sovereign of all things. The one who was and is and is to come. The one who's infinite and eternal. Who wisely decrees all that comes to pass. So does David need to tell the Lord that now is the time to act? That's not what's happening here. (laughs) Why is David being so bold though? Why is his zeal reaching a fever pitch here? What's he getting at? Well, first of all, he's not telling the Lord the wisest timeline. That's not what he's trying to do. Second of all, he's not flying off the handle in an unself-controlled manner. He's not like, that's it. I've taken enough personal injuries as I can handle. Lord, wipe them out. That's not what he's doing here. He's not crying out for the Lord to right some personal injury of David's. That's not what's happening here. So what's happening? David is boiling with jealousy for God's glory. He's jealous that God would be manifested in the midst of his people. Because remember, who are these oppressors? Who are these ones who are breaking the law? It's the people of God within the covenant community. And David says, enough is enough, Lord. It's not that I can't take any more personal insults or injuries. It's that I cannot stand you being swiped at and not being glorified and magnified and worshiped and served as you deserve. That's why his zeal is reaching the boiling point here. Because again, notice the second half of verse 126. It is time for the Lord to act for your law has been broken. David is boldly telling the Lord to act here because the sanctity of the Lord's covenant and law is being trampled underfoot by God's own people. And David is furious about this. Not for his own sake, but for the Lord's. For the sake of the Lord's glory. And why is that? David is jealous for the glory of his master because he knows his master. And what does he know about his master? He not only knows that his master is glorious, he knows that his master is jealous for his own glory. Who and who alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise? God alone, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so for God to allow anybody else to have that glory and honor and praise would be completely unjust and unfounded and wrong. And so David knows this about his God. His God is jealous for his own glory, that his character be made great among the nations and amongst his people. And so David is roiling with jealousy himself for God. And so he says, Lord, act now. Vindicate your name in the eyes of your people and in the eyes of the nations because you are my glorious master and I am your jealous servant. You can see this same reality in the final two verses. Look at verse 127 with me. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Now, I love this because what is David saying here? He's saying, therefore, well, what does therefore tip us off to? What follows is connected to what has come before it. What he's going to say is connected to what has preceded it. Well, what precedes it? 
that these enemies hate God and they've broken his law, their hatred is becoming very high-handed. Their sin is becoming high-handed. And so I love what David's response is. He says, because your law is being broken, Lord, I love it all the more. Because their hatred is rising, my love for your law is rising. Because their hatred for you is increasing, my love for you is increasing. There is a direct relationship between David's enemies, God's enemies, hatred of the law, and David's love for God and his law. As one goes up, so does the other. And you've experienced this, haven't you? I hope you have. I know I have. And so David says what? I love your law more than anything that this world has to offer, more than gold, even the purest gold, more than any of its riches or comforts. Lord, I love your law. It's the exact same thing he says in verse 128. Look there with me. He says, therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Again, he's saying, because your enemies consider themselves to be right in their own eyes and they love every false way, I affirm and love with even greater vehemence your law all the more and I hate every false way even more than I did. Again, we see this direct relationship as their hatred increases and their high-handed sin, David's love and obedience increases again. Why? Is it just because David likes being belligerent? Yeah, all right, David, what a rebel. No, he's not being belligerent for belligerent's sake. What is he doing here? Again, he's jealous. He's jealous for the glory of his master, his God who so lovingly and graciously cares for him. So David can't help himself. He can't contain it. The more they hate, the more he loves God and his law and his people. And you see, brothers and sisters, once we've tasted and seen the goodness of our gracious master, beheld his glory and how sweet service to him is, we will also be jealous for his glory. And so as a result, when we see God's law being broken high-handedly by his own people, by those within the church, with complete disregard for God's holiness and glory, we will cry out as Jesus taught us to, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Now is the time. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We'll cry out with John when he says, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now is the time. Vindicate your glory. And we will do so not because we're personally inconvenienced or injured, but because we are furious that our God is being treated so flippantly with triviality and with scorn. And this is how any well-cared-for servant feels about his master's glory. And so, brothers and sisters, <laughs> behold the grace of God. Doesn't it take your breath away? He has become our loving master. He's redeemed us from our slavery to the flesh and the world and the devil through the coming of his son and the sending of his spirit. And now by his grace, it is our privilege to be his loyal, humble, and jealous servants who sing together in one accord, my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of your name. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
we are deeply humbled by who you are and by the covenant kindnesses, the graces, the mercies, the steadfast love that you've shown to us. We confess we don't deserve it. We confess that we were slaves willingly, involuntary slavery to the flesh, the world, and the devil, and yet you freed us in the giving of your son. We're thankful for him. We pray that you would provoke repentance in us for the ways that we have not been faithful servants to you and rejoice in knowing that you give us forgiveness in your son. And so, Lord, we do pray in light of you being our master that you would cause us to grow more in our loyalty to you because you are faithful, in our humility because you are gracious and holy, and in our jealousy because you are jealous for your namesake and you are glorious. And may we take this good news, willing to pay whatever cost because our master has left us with work to do. And so may we take this gospel, no matter what the cost, to the ends of the earth, knowing that our master will care for us and work all things for our good and his glory. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.